At the dawn of the 1959 season, Oklahoma stood as first among equals in the world of college football, just as it had in 1958, just as it had in every other year in the decade. College football dynasties are built on foundations of talent and intimidation. Most of the time, the team in power is better than everyone else. Once or twice a season, the power of dynasty turns on belief. The team in power believes it will win, knows it will win, knows how to win. In the 1950s, Oklahoma was that power. In a sport in which a team's entire roster turns over every five years, the Sooners maintained their dominance for more than a decade. They began with an undefeated season in 1948, their second season under coach Bud Wilkinson, and they continued through 1958, winning three national championships and setting a record unbeaten streak that still stands. Oklahoma began the 1959 season ranked number two in the country, and before the first game had ended, the Oklahoma dynasty had careened off the road. The Sooners lost that open, lost it to number 10 Northwestern, lost it 45 to 13, the worst loss in Wilkinson's Hall of Fame career. From that week onward, Oklahoma no longer could intimidate opponents just by putting on the crimson and cream. The Sooners had been exposed. And what exposed them? Was it a wrinkle devised by Northwestern's coach, a future Hall of Famer himself by the name of Ara Parsegan? Was it a player on the Wildcats roster? No and no. The incredible Oklahoma run of success came to a halt because of fruit salad. Yes, fruit salad. In the state of Oklahoma, there's a firm belief that the Sooners' invincibility ended because of sabotage. And six decades later, no one has ever solved the whodunit. Welcome to Down and Distance, a podcast about the history of college football, part of ESPN's College Football 150, commemorating the 150th anniversary of the sport. I'm your host, Ivan Mazel. In today's episode, Sooner Sabotage, we look at how Oklahoma was taken down and how the alleged perpetrators got away with it. You know who works hard? Rookies. Sure, they make mistakes, but no one's got more to prove, knowing each day is another opportunity to outwork them all and earn the respect they deserve. That's why, after 130 years, Carhartt still approaches each day with the passion and work ethic of a company that's 130 years young. Same hunger, same determination, same giant chip on the shoulder. And in the same way a rookie needs to work hard to earn the respect of their peers, everything Carhartt makes has to keep earning the respect of the hardworking people who wear it. That's why Carhartt still works like a rookie, and why Carhartt will keep outworking them all for the next 130 years, too. Visit carhartt.com forward slash CFB to learn more and shop this season's hardest working gear. Oklahoma football under Bud Wilkinson represented unparalleled excellence. Every resident of the state, even the Oklahoma State fans, understood what the Sooners meant to the profile of the Sooner State. Oklahoma had been a state since only 1907, and for most of those 52 years, 
Oklahoma had had a rough time. The Depression devastated the state of Oklahoma, as it did pretty much the entire nation. Only it saved a little more for the Sooner State. The severe drought that attacked the nation's midsection created the Dust Bowl. Farmland dried up and blew away, literally, taking the livelihood of thousands of state residents with it. In 1939, John Steinbeck published The Grapes of Wrath, a novel about a farm family that left Oklahoma and, like so many others, headed to California. The novel popularized the term Oki as derisive and cast a harsh, painful light upon the state and its people. Two events during the 1940s suffused the self-esteem of Oklahomans. In 1943, Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein II debuted a new kind of musical, one in which the songs themselves told the story. That musical, Oklahoma, remains a timeless love letter to the state. The other event that propped up Sooners took place after the war, when Oklahoma hired a new football coach, a Navy veteran, whose calm self-assurance belied his tender age of 31. Inside Football with Bud Wilkinson, head coach of the University of Oklahoma's football team. Hello, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you. You know, one of the most interesting plays to me in a football game is when it's fourth down and you know one of the teams is going to have to kick. Only a decade earlier, Bud Wilkinson had been a two-time All-American at Minnesota. Wilkinson believed in speed. He believed in repetition. And he radiated faith in his players. He made them feel that if they did what he asked, they could not fail. And they didn't. From Wilkinson's first season in 1947 through 1958, the Sooners won or shared every conference title. Twelve seasons, twelve titles. The Sooners won three national championships. They put together two winning streaks that defied belief. Beginning in 1948, the Sooners won 31 consecutive games. That streak ended when the Sooners lost the 1951 Sugar Bowl to another team with a young Navy veteran as a coach. Number 7 Kentucky, led by Paul Bear Bryant, knocked off Oklahoma 13-7. After the game... Bryant stood in amazement as Wilkinson walked into the Kentucky locker room and congratulated each and every Wildcat on the win, a custom that so impressed Bryant that he adopted it as his own for the rest of his legendary career. The second unbeaten streak began in the second game of the 1953 season, a 7-7 tie with Pittsburgh. From that game to the middle of 1957, five separate seasons, Oklahoma stayed unbeaten for 47 consecutive games. That streak is a record that still stands. In fact, in the more than six decades since, no FBS team has come closer than 12 games to the Sooners' record. By 1957, Sports Illustrated wrote an article comparing the Sooners' invincibility to that of the Roman Catholic Church and the Standard Oil Company. That may not hold up now, but in the 1950s, that was invincibility. The SI story described the typical Sooner player as having the spare toughness of a mesquite tree and the endurance of a coyote. If nothing else, that story gave rise to the concept of the SI cover jinx. A couple of days after the story ran, 
Oklahoma lost to Notre Dame 7 to nothing, ending the unbeaten streak at 47 games. When the 1959 season began, Wilkinson had a career coaching record of 114 wins, 10 losses, and 3 ties. In the 50s alone, through 1958, the Sooners had a record of 86-7-2, and and none of those seven losses came by more than seven points. But this year, 1959, two things looked different for Oklahoma. One, Wilkinson feared that he didn't have the depth of talent that he had gotten used to having during his tenure in Norman. Recruiting had been difficult in the mid-1950s, as the NCAA put the Sooners on probation for what looked to be fairly routine violations. And two, for the first time in 20 years, Oklahoma would play a Big Ten team. They would open the season at Northwestern. One consistent knock against the Sooners during Wilkinson's tenure had been the weakness of the Big Seven Conference in general and the strength of Oklahoma's schedule in particular. And Oklahoma State joining the league and making it the Big 8 in 1958 didn't really help. Northwestern had not been a contender in the Big Ten since the late 1940s. In the mid-50s, the Wildcats played so poorly that the student newspaper suggested they drop out of the Big Ten. But third-year coach Era Parsegan had given Northwestern some hope. The Cats had beaten both Michigan and Ohio State in 1958 before fading to a 5-4 finish and most of their starters returned. The writers and broadcasters in the AP poll voted the Wildcats number 10 in the preseason vote. However, Northwestern was only the third highest ranked team in the Big Ten, trailing both Wisconsin and defending champion Iowa. The Sooners' flight to Chicago was a bumpy one in rough weather. I'm not a believer in omens, but the Braniff Airlines flight sure set the tone for what awaited Oklahoma. It was so bumpy that several players were too airsick to eat. The team checked in at its Evanston Hotel and boarded a bus Thursday for the bright lights of Chicago. Well, not the whole team. Two players stayed back. One of them was Prentice Gott, the Sooners' leading rusher in 1958. Gott had had off-season surgery, but that's not why he stayed behind. As Oklahoma's lone African-American player, he didn't take for granted that he would be served in a Chicago nightclub. Gant decided to stay back and not create a problem. The other 38 Sooners got on the bus and headed south to downtown Chicago, where they would eat a steak dinner and take in the 8.45 p.m. show at Shea Paris, the nightclub where the great singers and entertainers of the era appeared. Frank Sinatra sang there. Ella Fitzgerald, Dean Martin, and Jerry Lewis, pretty much any singer or comedian worthy of Las Vegas appeared at Chez Paris. The club's dancers were known as the Adorables. An undated postcard illustration of Chez Paris shows a typical nightclub. White tablecloths, white cloth napkins folded just so. An orchestra space arrayed below a curtain stage. That wasn't the only way that Chez Paris resembled Vegas. Chez Paris was the nightclub hangout of several Chicago mobsters. Sam Giancana, who counted Frank Sinatra among his acolytes and later shared a girlfriend with President John Kennedy, was a regular at Chez Paris. 
Sinatra wasn't headlining at Chez Paris on Thursday, September 24, 1959. Instead, the star was Patrice Wymore, a 32-year-old singer and actress better known as the wife of movie star Errol Flynn. Coach Wilkinson didn't care who the entertainer was. He wanted his players to enjoy the city two nights before their first game of the year. The team filed off the bus and into the front door of Chez Paris. Inside, a beautiful blonde and two older men greeted each player. The woman asked each player his name and what position he played. That didn't happen to the Sooners in most restaurants. In retrospect, once the players got on the other side of the incident, they pinpointed her questions as the hole in the firewall. But in the moment, the Oklahoma players, thinking the woman was being right neighborly, complied with answers. The players continued to their table, where the planned menu called for that quintessential American meal of the post-war era. Steak, mashed potatoes, tossed salad, and rolls. And to kick off that quintessential American meal, the opening course for every sophisticated 1950s American dinner party, fruit salad. If you look on the internet, you will find recipes from the 1950s that mix fruit salad with ham, nuts, cream cheese, or mayonnaise, sometimes more than one. Nowhere is there a recipe that mixes fruit salad with the downfall of the most powerful college football team in the country. Nowhere except on the white tablecloths and white cloth napkins folded just so at Chez Paris in Chicago on a late Thursday in September 1959. The players who ate the fruit salad became ill within minutes of eating it. And I mean ill. I'll spare you the specifics because I don't want to make you or me sick except to say that the fruit salad-eating Oklahoma Sooners vomited early and often in the restaurant men's room, outside the restaurant, out the cab windows en route from the restaurant. One cab veered off the route back to the hotel in Evanston and went straight to the emergency room of Weiss Hospital in Uptown. Whatever meal the Sooners had planned, most of the team didn't get past the fruit salad. Bud Wilkinson's son Jay wrote a memoir about his father. In the book... Jay quotes senior halfback Brewster Hobby, who recalled that the waitstaff didn't walk out and serve the fruit salad all at once to the 38 Sooners. They served to this player and that, nearly to a man, all of them starters and key backups in the backfield. And those who ate the fruit salad didn't make it to the toss salad, much less the steak and the mashed potatoes. Brewster Hobby said nearly two dozen Sooners became ill. Nine members of the Oklahoma party had their stomachs pumped. Seven were hospitalized. Juan Smith, who wrote a history of Oklahoma football, quoted quarterback Bobby Boyd that a doctor at the hospital told Boyd that the substance in his system was apomorphine. The best description I found for apomorphine is that it is a potent emetic, a substance that induces vomiting. Nowhere did I come across a suggestion of apomorphine as a topping for fruit salad. Other side effects of apomorphine include dizziness, sleepiness, and hallucinations. No one said anything about the sickened Sooners suffering hallucinations. 
but dizziness and sleepiness are of a piece with the way that the Sooners performed on Saturday, September 25th at Northwestern, which is just what someone trying to fix a game might try to do. More about that later. Throughout the history of college football, you know that every great moment has come from teams combining tireless preparation and hard work. Same for your business. From hotel chains to airlines, universities to healthcare facilities, retailers to local auto mechanics, more than one million businesses trust Centos to help them open their doors with confidence and get ready for the workday. College football has always been rooted in tradition. For example, the uniforms the maize and blue, the crimson and cream. Centos has apparel programs to help your employees convey the right image, leading your business to the promised land. Great teams keep their goals top of mind. They don't waste time with distractions. It's your business. Focus on what you do best and leave the rest to Centos. Get Centos and get ready for the workday. Learn how Centos can help get your business ready at Centos.com. The Tribune reported that eight Sooners, five of them starters, missed practice on Friday. Five starters was nearly half the starting lineup. Remember, in those days, you played offense and defense. By Saturday, everyone was available, but some of them had lost as much as 10 pounds, and this on a roster on which no one weighed more than 225. Oklahoma had a habit under Wilkinson of starting slowly, But for those Sooner fans who might have been wary of how Oklahoma came out of the starting blocks, it became clear very quickly that this was not a typical early season stumble. Oklahoma's third possession of the game began after Northwestern downed a punt at the Sooner 9. On first down, Oklahoma appeared to line up for a quick kick, a tactic popular with defensive-minded coaches of the day. The snap went wildly awry bouncing off the leg of another Sooner in the backfield. Northwestern blocked the kicker's attempt to get the ball away, and the Wildcats chased the ball down at the Oklahoma 9. On the Wildcats' first play, the offensive line simply made the Oklahoma defensive front disappear. Mike Stock took the ball and ran around left end to the one-yard line. Northwestern took the lead for good two plays later. That sequence served as a trailer for the rest of the afternoon. Oklahoma fumbled 12 times, 12 times, and lost five of them. Some of that could be blamed on the rain that began to fall. By the second half, the field resembled a mud pit. But it rained on northwestern side of the field, too, and the Wildcats fumbled exactly twice. In the second quarter, after the rain had begun to fall, Northwestern halfback Ron Burton ran around right in and cut back to the middle, running right through three Oklahoma tackles for a 62-yard touchdown. Keep in mind, the year before, Oklahoma had shut out five of ten opponents. Burton's score gave Northwestern a 19-7 lead, and it was 25-7 at halftime. In the third quarter, with the field reduced to mud, Northwestern ran a trick play that exposed just how incapacitated the Sooners were. 
The Wildcats center took his stance over the ball at the left end of the line. He was the center in name only. The other four linemen lined up to his right. Northwestern quarterback Dick Thornton took the snap, gave a quick juke, and Oklahoma defensive end Ronnie Payne stumbled at his feet. Payne scrambled after Thornton and didn't catch him until the quarterback gained 14 yards. No one else caught him either. To say that the final score of 45-13 to stunned the college football world would be an understatement. To say it was an outlier in Wilkinson's Hall of Fame career would be obvious. Wilkinson lost 29 games in 17 seasons. The loss to Northwestern was his biggest by 10 points. So the question is, what happened here? Had Oklahoma just happened to eat bad fruit salad? Or did someone deliberately douse their melons and bananas with apomorphine? Here's what we know. Sports gambling in the 1950s was legal only in Las Vegas. Elsewhere, it thrived where it thrived for most of the 20th century, in the shadows, controlled by bad guys. But it did come out in the open every once in a while. Two of the most powerful teams in college basketball, Kentucky and City College of New York, suffered gambling scandals that wrecked both programs in the early 50s. Players at those schools took money to affect the outcome of the game. They serve as a prime example of how college basketball is easier to fix. All you need to do is turn one player on a five-man team. It's tougher to fix a college football game. There are 11 players on each side of the ball, not five. To fix college football, really fix a game so that a bet wasn't a gamble but a sure thing, it wouldn't do to pick off one player. Instead of a scalpel, a gambler would need a bludgeon. He'd have to take out as many players as he could. I say, making them sick. How do we know the poisoning was done with gambling in mind? The betting line, with Oklahoma as the favorite, began dropping Thursday night. Author Jim Dent, in his book The Undefeated, wrote that both Wilkinson and Oklahoma Sports Information Director Harold Keefe got phone calls in the 48 hours before the game warning them that the betting money was going heavily against Oklahoma. The timing of the calls vis-a-vis when the players began to get ill isn't well established. But keep in mind that news traveled much more slowly in 1959 than it does today. News of the epidemic that socked the Oklahoma team didn't spread at Twitter speed. About 20 years ago, a writer named Charlie Rosen published a book called The Wizard of Odds about a gambler named Jack Molinas, in which Molinas laid out the story of the Oklahoma food poisoning. The book gets a lot of the details of the story wrong. Molinas told Rosen that Oklahoma played Notre Dame. Molinas said someone poisoned the player's steaks and that Notre Dame won the game 35-7. to Normally, I would discount the telling of that story because it's so flat wrong. But the fact that a gambler told the story of an Oklahoma game being fixed indicates to me that the story was handed down from wise guy to wise guy through the years. To me, the circumstantial evidence is too strong for this to be just circumstance. Count me in the camp that believes the Sooners were sabotaged. 
Building a winning team is all about finding the right people for the job. That's why college coaches all over the country spend so much time recruiting players they need on the field. And when it comes to hiring for your business, there's no better tool than LinkedIn. LinkedIn provides a vast array of recommended job candidates all in one organized place. Over 600 million members visit LinkedIn to make connections, learn, and grow as professionals and discover new job opportunities. That's how they make sure your job post gets in front of people with the right hard skills and soft skills to meet your role requirements. Things like collaboration, work ethic, adaptability. LinkedIn does the legwork to match you to the most qualified candidates so you can focus on hiring the person who will transform your business. To get $50 off your first job post, go to linkedin.com slash CFB. That's linkedin.com slash CFB to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. Food poisoning of the second-ranked team in the nation sounds like a substantive story. Deliberate food poisoning of the second-ranked team in the nation by someone trying to maneuver the betting line sounds like a Pulitzer Prize waiting to be won. Yet the Chicago Tribune the Chicagoland newspaper with the most weight to throw around, barely showed any interest. As far as I can tell, there are two reasons why the Trib didn't dive into this story. One, it was Northwestern. Then as now, the Cats had trouble getting noticed by the Chicago media, or, for that matter, the Chicago sports fan. There's a famous anecdote about why Era Parsegan decided to leave Northwestern for Notre Dame. The Cats won at Ohio State, a big upset. And on the flight home, Parsegan speculated on the size of the crowd that awaited the team on campus. A writer covering the team bet the coach a steak dinner that no fans would show up at all. Parsegan lost the bet. Beyond the general ennui about Northwestern, in the week after the rout of Oklahoma, little room existed for Northwestern football or food poisoning, or just about any story but one in Chicago news. That was the week that the Chicago White Sox began playing in their first World Series in 40 years. And in 1959, the White Sox actually planned to try and win the series. The 1919 Sox came to be known as the Black Sox because someone tried, and succeeded, to maneuver the betting line on the World Series. Several members of the Sox took money to throw the series to the Cincinnati Reds. When the World Series returned, 40 years later, it got banner headlines on the front page. The real front page, not the front page of the sports section. Oklahoma's food poisoning got one follow-up story in the Tribune on the incident, buried in the sports section on the Wednesday after the game. The story reported that the Chicago Board of Health had found no traces of poison in the food eaten by the players at the Chez Paris. It had found bacteria in the turkey sandwiches eaten by the players at their hotel in Evanston. But that finding solved nothing. The bacteria it found isn't associated with the kind of immediate sickness that felled the Sooners. Not to mention that assistant coach Jimmy Harris, one of those who got sick, didn't eat a turkey sandwich. He ate with the Sooner coaches in a different room of the hotel. All that was left to do was wait for the test results of the content pumped from the stomachs of the nine victims who needed that drastic procedure. Sixty years later, we are still waiting for those results. 
We are still waiting because the tests were never performed. At some point between where they were collected in the hospital and the lab, the specimens from the stomachs of the ill Sooners disappeared. It would make sense to tell you that the Sooners picked themselves up out of the mud and muck, went home, and resumed their dynasty. It was one game. Coaches then and now talk and talk and talk about leaving the last game behind. Listen, men, even after one bad day, Oklahoma is still Oklahoma. Even after one bad loss, Oklahoma is 59-3 and in the 1950s. Only that's not how the human mind works. Winning is expected. Competitors don't replay victories over and over in their minds. The Sooners dropped from number two completely out of the top 20. They didn't enter the top 10 again until late 1962. They spent only one more week at number one under Wilkinson, the third week of the 1963 season, in which they lost to number two Texas 28-7. Years later, Leon Cross, a lineman on the team who spent a long career in the Oklahoma Athletic Department, said that the level of talent dropped and that continued success had sapped the Sooners of the hunger needed to win at the top level of the game. Swagger often could paper over those flaws. Just as teams expect to win, their opponents expect to lose. That's what made the loss to Northwestern even though it was precipitated by outside events, so devastating. Northwestern stripped Oklahoma of its invincibility, not only in the minds of the Sooners, but in the minds of the teams that faced them. Two weeks after the loss to Northwestern, Oklahoma lost to Texas for the second consecutive season. Later in the year, Oklahoma lost at Nebraska, the first time in Wilkinson's 13 seasons that his team lost a conference game. Loss of mojo indeed. After that 7-3 season, Oklahoma won only three of its next 15 games. Wilkinson did turn the program back around. By 1963, he had Oklahoma back in the top 10. But at age 47, he wanted a new challenge. Wilkinson retired after the 1963 season, and the next year, he ran for the U.S. Senate. He picked the wrong year to run as a Republican. President Lyndon Johnson, a Democrat, beat Republican Barry Goldwater so badly that Republicans all the way down the ballot suffered. Wilkinson lost the race by 15,000 votes. And what of Northwestern in 1959? The upset rocketed the Wildcats to number two in the AP poll, where they stayed for seven weeks. But the team that perennially lacked the depth of talent necessary to survive in the Big Ten started fast and faded in November, just as they had the year before. Northwestern won its first six games and lost its last three. The coach, Eric Parsegan, a passionate man who did not like being ignored by fans, left Evanston after the 1963 season to become head coach at Notre Dame. In 11 seasons with the Fighting Irish, Parsegan won two national championships and never wanted for attention again. Oklahoma didn't become dominant again for a decade when Barry Switzer took over in 1973. He won three national championships in 16 seasons, restoring the Sooners to their former perch astride the world of college football, 
the place where they lived until taken down by fruit salad. I'm Ivan Maisel. Down in Distance is part of ESPN's College Football 150, commemorating the 150th anniversary of the sport. If you like this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Down in Distance is produced by Nina Ernest, with help from Scott Siebers, Ryan Nantel, and Jody Avergan. Our engineer is Josh Macri. Special thanks to Alexandria Cooper, Gabe Bassain, and the Oklahoma Historical Society. The executive producer of ESPN College Football 150 is John Dahl. I'm Ivan Mazel. On our final episode, I'll tell you the story of how two college football teams found themselves marooned on Oahu on December 7, 1941, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, and the remarkable journey they took before they got back to the mainland. We interrupt this season on the next Down and Distance.